Years ago, when we started studying through 1 Samuel, the first message was entitled, The Place Where God So Often Begins. The book of 1 Samuel began by introducing us to a woman named Hannah, who would become Samuel's mother. But before she would become Samuel's mother, you might recall that she was barren. She was unable to conceive, even as Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel... Samson's mother, we don't know her name, we know her as Manoah's wife, even as they weren't able to conceive, even as later in redemptive history, Elizabeth for a time would not be able to conceive until she was able to conceive John the Baptist. The barren womb, emblematic of helplessness, is indeed so often the place where God begins. Well, having started at the place where God so often begins, we now come to the place where the plague ends. And as we will see, the place where the plague ends is emblematic of the place, the only place where the plague of God's righteous wrath can be satisfied. We'll see that when we get there, but first let's create some context. Last time, you recall as we studied 2 Samuel 24, verses 1-10, through we saw that God was angry with Israel. And He, knowing the sin of David's heart, per the account in Chronicles, permitted Satan to tempt David to number the people of Israel. And before our eyes was yet again set a stark example of how the sovereign God of the universe sovereignly and sinlessly superintends all things, using even Satan's evil and David's sin to accomplish the purpose of bringing about righteous judgment in Israel. Well, as you go on in the narrative, even as we did last week, you might recall that Joab and the captains of the army protested, but David resisted, and David persisted, and it wasn't a good kind of persistence, and so the census was officially ordered. And close to about 10 months later, because it was a census, they had to go through all the land of Israel, Joab and the men. They go through the land, and close to 10 months later, the census is completed. And after the census had been completed, we're told that David's heart smote him. His heart struck him. And he knew that he had sinned. And then we saw, almost reflexively, seemingly reflexively, he confessed his sin to God. One of the points I made last week, and I'll call it to your attention again in this moment, is it seems like there's been some measure of growth in David. David didn't need the prophet Nathan to come to him with an indicting parable so that his sin might be confessed. David's heart smote him, and then per the text, reflexively, he confessed his sin to God. He confessed his sin shortly thereafter. And I would just say to us, by way of instruction, in light of that observation, our hearts ought to be a kind of reflex hammer. You know a reflex hammer? You remember when the doctor, you know, you'd stick your knee out, and you just keep your knee right there, and then the doctor would hit it with a reflex hammer, and what would happen when you'd hit it? More often than not, as long as everything's okay with your central and peripheral nervous system, your leg goes up, right? Our hearts ought to be like a kind of reflex hammer, so that when our heart smites us with legitimate conviction, wrought by the Holy Spirit, what ought to follow reflexively shortly thereafter ought to be confession of sin. Quickly. To God, and then if need be, to others as well. I think that's a bit of instruction that's important for us. It's a good witness. If that's happening, even as a good you know, movement of the leg after being hit with a reflex hammer is a good witness to some measure of physical health with the nervous system, 
It's a good witness to spiritual health if when your heart smites you, that shortly thereafter, provided it's legitimate conviction, that you would offer up a confession to God, patterned after David and not after Saul. We see Saul say that he has sinned on previous occasions, but it wasn't joined with true repentance. David, on the other hand, his confession is joined to true repentance. Now, I think we would like, for at least I'll speak for myself, that we would like in our fallen frames to have the story end at verse 10. I think there's part of us that would just like that. David saw that he had done wrong, and David confessed his sin, and that's it. And it was over, and nothing else happened, and he learned from it, and he never numbered the people with wrong motives ever again. But that's not what happened. It wasn't the end. It was, as I told you last week, it was simply the hinge, the hinge of the story. The narrative continues in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 11 through 13, where we read, Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord or the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord or Yahweh, I offer three things, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. So here's the context. Verse 10, David confesses his sin. David goes to sleep. David arises in the morning as we see the text here. And at that time, as David arises in the morning, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. We haven't seen Gad since back in 1 Samuel 22 during that cave of Adullam message. In 1 Samuel 22 verse 5, he had given instruction and counsel to David. He told him, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. And that reference, the fact that Gad was with David back in the day like that, shows you, me, the reader, that he's been with David from just about the beginning of David's flight from Saul. Now, interestingly, he is called here David's seer, but he's also identified as a prophet. Quick note about that. The two terms are essentially synonymous. Now, you could maybe nuance uh, some things about that a little bit, but they are essentially synonymous. And the reason I would say that is because in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9, we are told that he who is now called a prophet, right? this is in the days in which 1 Samuel was written, he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. So the two terms are essentially interchangeable. Well, the word of Yahweh came to Gad and told him to go tell David, I'm offering you three things. You have a choice. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. Now this is a remarkable moment in redemptive history. The God of the universe is offering David the choice of the temporal punishment that he and the nation will undergo. It's a unique moment in redemptive history. As to why God offered a choice as opposed to simply levying a sentence, we'll get there. I'll set before you some hypotheses. But first, let's consider the options that David had to consider. You can see the expanded form of David's options by looking in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 12. There we see not seven years of famine, but three years of famine. So there's a question as to how many years of famine were presented. The Chronicles account says three years of famine. Or 
three months to be defeated by foes with the sword of the enemies overtaking uh, the people of Israel, or else three days, to use language from 1 Chronicles 21, verse 12, three days, the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, going back to where we were last week, assuming that the motivation behind David's census, which, if you recall, was essentially a military draft. Like, that's essentially what it was. They're counting the army men in Israel. Who, who are the guys over 20 years old who are fit to do battle in the army, who are options for a draft, essentially? Now, assuming that's the motivation, that Israel's army would be stronger, apparently, that Israel's army would be bigger, more formidable, apparently, at least to human sight. And these options were a stark reminder that there was no security to be found in numbers. No amount of numbers in the army or in Israel could stop what was coming. No amount of people could stop the famine that would come if David chose famine. No amount of people could stop the armies of the enemies who would come and overtake the people of Israel. It doesn't matter. Even if they had you know, billions of men, if Yahweh was not for them and Yahweh was against them, it wouldn't matter. And nothing could stop the judgment that Yahweh was going to bring via a plague. And I think this is an important reminder for all of us that unless the Lord builds the city, unless the Lord preserves the nation, unless the Lord preserves the body, spiritual body, physical body, unless the Lord does it, whoever tries to build or preserve, whatever trying to build or preserve, does so in vain. So a quick bit of application for us, I think, would be something like this. Be sure, be on guard against sitting on the wobbly, two-legged stool of the arm of the flesh. You don't want to put your confidence in yourself. You don't want to put your confidence in man. You want your confidence to be in the living God. Not in numbers, not in your own physical strength, not in your own ingenuity, not in the options that are presented to you. You want your confidence to be ultimately resting upon God. The living triune God. So David, he's here presented with three options. If you were to ask me why was he presented with three options and why did he have the opportunity to choose, I would begin by telling you that the Scripture does not tell us exactly. But I would suggest to you the following hypotheses. When you look at the fact that he was presented with the option, as seen in verses 11 through 13, and then when you see his reaction, his choice, and what his choice teaches us about God and about Him, I think therein lies the answer. Let me begin to unpack that. We'll get to verse 14 in a moment, but just in the reality of God presenting David with the options, I think we're reminded of something. I just want to call attention to this. I think we're reminded that God is the God who condescends. Is He not? Does He not show Himself to be that over and over again in Scripture? The God who condescends? He's the God who asked Adam, where are you? But not only did He ask Adam, where are you? He's the one who condescended and made coverings for Adam and Eve. If you want to see God's condescension, maybe besides the Gospel and the Incarnation, if you're looking for an Old Testament example, one of my favorite is Jonah. You want to see the condescension of God? Look how He patiently talks to Jonah over and over again, and Jonah is obstinate. He condescends. Now, 
He doesn't owe David interaction here. David has sinned against him. David succumbed to his own sin and Satan's sin. He does not owe human beings interaction. Human beings owe him obedience. Yet here he is condescending and interacting. What a God. Second, and this is what we see also, and I think this is part of the reasoning behind the presentation of the choices. To follow the thinking of Gordon Ketty, the choice drives home the fact that David's sin is bringing this about. The fact that he's presented with the choice drives home the fact that David's sin is bringing this about. Yes, God had appointed to judge Israel. Yes, but the instrumentation through which he would do it would be David's sin and David's rebellion in this moment. Now, I know, I know for us that we would like We would want the reality um, that our iniquity has been put away and that our sins have been forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ to mean that sin in the present age brings with it no consequences. I know, I know we would want a lifelong series of do-overs. Don't you? Don't, Don't just wish that like the minute you say, I'm sorry, that was wrong, or you look back and say, I can't believe I did that, that there were no ripple effects to your sin. Not for you, not for others, not for your posterity. We would love for that to be the case. But here is a reminder to us that sin, even if paid for ultimately, nonetheless in the present age, brings with it consequences. And consequences that can affect other people. And affect other people quite severely. Yes, the eternal price has been paid, but there is often temporal damage and other people can suffer because of it. I think, for me, this text is a reminder that sin is often like a credit card where we can rack up charges as rebellions accrue and then we think there might not be any consequences of that until the statement comes. And then it's like, oh, I guess there were ripple effects to that. I just, I just want to encourage you. I, I think the Word of God so often provides us with motivations to stay away from sin. That it will do damage. It will do harm. It will bring hurt. It will bring pain. But please don't forget. No debris is greater than the grace of God. The grace of God is greater than all the debris that our sin can cause. Now, but besides the the display of gracious condescension and besides the cause and effect reality that's illustrated, I think the question... And part of the reason, my opinion, my opinion, part of the reasoning for this question being presented to David is what it then brings about in David's response that shows us more about who God is and who David is. We see in verse 14 where we read, And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord or Yahweh, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So David knew this was going to be difficult. He told Gad, I am in great distress. He didn't have to process it much. He knew. Whether I choose famine, whether I choose enemies, whether I choose the plague, people are going to to suffer. This is going to be painful. Any option, any option he chose brought with it judgment. Righteous judgment, yes, but nonetheless a judgment that was connected with David's sin. With that being said, I want to call your attention to what I think we see about God in David's response. And what we learn about David in light of David's response. First, what we learn about God. David's response reminds us of how great God's mercies are. 
See, David basically broke down the choices presented to him in two categories. I can either fall into the hand of man, or I can fall into the hand of the Lord. That's how David processed it. Now, did he break it down in this way to say, if famine comes, then we're going to be dependent upon other people. We're going to be dependent on other nations. And if enemies come, we're going to be victimized by these enemies that are attacking and overtaking us. Maybe that was the processing that went through it. But essentially, he basically broke it down like this. I can either fall into the hand of man, or I could fall into the hand of God. And maybe what David chooses here surprises us. David says, I'd rather fall into the hand of God than fall into the hand of man because God's mercies are great. I think many times fallen people can think that they themselves are more merciful than God. Right? Like, if I was God, I wouldn't do this. If I was God, I would be more merciful. I think part of the equation there is fallen man does not take into consideration the importance of righteousness and holiness and justice. God's mercy is mingled with perfect righteousness, whereas man, even when he thinks he is merciful, would not have a mingling with perfect righteousness, perfect omniscience, perfect justice. But I want you to see David extolled the mercies of God, calling them great over and against falling into the hands of man. David saw, he's about to be chastened, and he knows the nation's going to be chastened by this holy God of the universe, yet he esteems the hand that is going to chasten him as more merciful than the fallen and sinful men around him. That's how great God's mercies are. Never make the mistake of thinking you or anybody you know is more merciful than God. Yahweh's mercies are great. David teaches us about God. He's presented with chastisement in this moment, yet he's still saying, I want your hand, God, to chastise me and to chastise our nation. Why? Because your mercies are great. Don't let me fall into the hand of man. Important to remember about our God. And we learn something about David, I think. David, at his best, is somebody who, by the grace of God, had a heart of trust with a kind of willful abandoning himself to God that we see so often in the Scriptures. I'd rather fall into your hands. I trust you. Your mercies are great. So as this narrative is about to conclude, we have here another epic moment where David is trusting the living God. I've come this far. I'm not putting myself in the hands of men. I'm putting myself in your hands. I trust you. Well, that brings us to verses 15 through 17 where we read, So the Lord, or Yahweh, sent a plague upon Israel from morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord, or Yahweh, relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was by the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. So in beginning of verse 15, we see the plague comes. Imagine the fearful nature of this. No way out. There's no escape. There's nothing you could do. There's nowhere you can go. There's nothing you could take. There's nothing that can be done to escape this. 
It's happening. And it's happening at such a level that 70,000 people die in Israel from Dan to Beersheba. All throughout the land of Israel, 70,000 people. Tremendous number. David's numbering did not lead to an expansion of the army. David's numbering led to a diminishing of the nation by the count of 70,000 people. I think it's a reminder, is it not, that sin often leads to the exact opposite of what it prospectively proposed. And that's how sin is, right? Sin proposes fulfillment, but then brings what? Emptiness. Sin proposes joy, and even if the pleasures of sin do indeed last for a season, what does it bring? Pain. Right? Sin proposes things. Like, okay, if I do this, then probably this will happen. And so often it's the exact opposite of what we see. Promises ease, brings hardship, and so on. And I do want to say this. I think if you are going to continue reading on, and you read through 1 Kings and you read through 2 Kings, there's a sense in which you would say there's a merciful aspect of this. God's mercies are indeed great, and there's a merciful aspect to the nation in this happening. Not only was it righteous judgment that was holy and just and righteous and right, but it was merciful to the nation. How might the nation have, dege- have, have degenerated even faster? What the, ge- the degeneration process in Israel, how quickly might it have gone if this judgment did not happen? By the time you get to the end of 2 Kings and you see Judah and Jerusalem eventually fall, it's because of the sin that's in the nation. It's because idolatry had become so rampant. It's because the people were not trusting the living God and so on. But here would be a reminder that God is the God who is alive and indeed does judge. And you would imagine that it would bring amongst the people some measure of reverence for the God who had struck the nation in the way that He had with the plague. Now I want to do the best that I can um, via unpacking the text and looking at Chronicles as well to paint the picture of this scene. Capture this scene. The angel had gone through the land of Israel. The angel of Yahweh. And now He stretches out His hand over Jerusalem. And Yahweh says to the angel, it is enough, now restrain your hand. We're told that the Lord relented. The language there can imply that the Lord was grieved. It's a good reminder that God is omniscient, yes, but indifferent, no. But there you have in this moment, the angel is by the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. He is suspended in the middle of the air. When we look in the book of Chronicles, we see he's not standing on a ledge. He is between heaven and earth. There is an angel with a sword in his hand, hovering between heaven and earth. Can you imagine that? David didn't have to imagine that. David saw that with his very eyes. He sees all of a sudden... I don't know what it was like in that moment, what he was looking at before, but he sees the angel of the Lord over the threshing floor of Araunah with a drawn sword in the middle of the sky, but that sword is stayed, reminiscent of Abraham's knife being stayed over Isaac. That's not by accident, I don't don't think so. Especially when you consider the very place in which this is happening. 
As a result of the sight of the angel and the gravity of the event, we're told per the Chronicles account that David and the elders clothed themselves in sackcloth. They fell on their faces. And when David saw the angel of the Lord, he fell on his face and he spoke to the Lord. And he said, and this is what we saw in our text, he said, surely I have sinned. I have done wickedly. So notice David is now confessing his sin again. I have sinned. I have done wickedly. Not only what we saw earlier in like verse 10, but now he's saying it again and he's repeatedly saying, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But then he goes on and he says, but these sheep, what have they done? In the Chronicles account, we see that he said, was it not I who gave the command to number the people? And we see in our text that he said, let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. See, David knows that he has sinned. And David knows that he has done wickedly, but he doesn't know that his sin was the instrument whereby God would punish their sins. David knew that no man is righteous in God's sight. You read Psalm 143 and you know that. But he does not know that his sin was the instrument by which God was punishing the sins of the people within the nation of Israel. But he is acting here like a good shepherd, isn't he? He's willing to lay his life down for the sheep that were under his care. He uses strong language. He doesn't want the judgment to fall on them. Let the judgment fall on me. Let the judgment fall on my father's house. Essentially, let it fall on my family. Let it fall on me. But don't let it fall on these sheep. What have they done? David wanted the judgment to fall on him and his father's house. But as a sinner, he could not satisfy the judgment of God for Himself or on behalf of others. It would take His descendant, His greater Son, the sinless One, the God-Man, Jesus Christ, to satisfy the wrath of God on behalf of His sheep. He would be the Good Shepherd who could lay down His life for the sheep because He was a spotless Lamb. He was the promised One. The One, looking back to 2 Samuel 23, that David knew all of his salvation was bound in. See, in contrast to David, who per this text said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never did wickedly. Yet, in accordance with the eternal plan of God, it was God's design that His hand would be against His Son, as it were. And that Jesus would take the punishment that you and I deserve. Well, back to the scene. David wanted the plague to end. He wanted the punishment to fall upon him. And David would play a role in the cessation of the plague. In verses 18-20 through 20 we read, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord or Yahweh on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as Yahweh commanded. Now Arauna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arauna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. God appeals to David through Gad. Notice that. God appeals to David through Gad. God takes the initiative and prescribes the means for reconciliation. Now watch this. I'm going to say it twice. So I'm telling you I'm going to say this twice because I think it's really important to note. According to God's design, the anointed king would end the plague by an altar and sacrifice. You know what's coming, right? I'm going to say it again. By God's design, the anointed king would end the plague 
by an altar, and by sacrifice. More about that later. <laughs> so David had to go build an altar. And where did he have to build it? He had to build it on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. Second half of verse 18. First half of verse 19. David did as Yahweh commanded. Now we don't know who this man Araunah was. Araunah, some, some call him Aruna. Some people called him Ornan. When you look in First Chronicles, that might have been his name. Araunah might have been his title. Some uh, theorized that maybe this man was actually, was actually a former king, the former king of the Jebusites. Remember that the land of Jerusalem was inhabited by the Jebusites before it was taken over um, by David and his men, before they conquered the Jebusites. So some think Araunah the Jebusite might have been a former king, but we do not know. We do know that when Araunah saw the king and his servants coming towards him, he went out and he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Verse 20. So he knew this was a serious moment. But the reason for the visitation had not become clear yet. But it would shortly. In verses 21 through 23 we read, Then Araunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord or Yahweh, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. And now Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord or Yahweh your God accept you. So David needed to buy this land. It was the prescription that this land would be the land that was bought, that this land would be where the altar was built. After all, Araunah could not use it as a threshing floor once the altar was built there. A threshing floor, simply put, is a place where wheat was separated from chaff. It was often located on a higher place, a hill of some sort, so as to better catch the breeze that would come. So that, as it was th- so that as the wheat was thrown up into the air, the chaff and the wheat would be separated as the stalks were thrown into the air and so on, that, um, that they might be separated, the wheat from the chaff. And so Aruna did what, I guess, what you would think a person would do in that situation, right? Like, this is a state of alarm. This is an emergency. 70,000 people have died in Israel and he offers, and I mean, there's angel of the Lord in the middle of the air, so you have that factor too. And he offers to David, like, just, just take it. I'll, I'll give you what you need, the, the, the instruments, I'll give you the oxen that you need, I'll give you whatever you need, the threshing floor, just take it. This is, some people wonder if this was just a, uh, the beginning of kind of ancient Near East bargaining. When you look in um, Genesis 23... Uh, you get an example of ancient Near East bargaining where Abraham is looking to buy a piece of land where he's going to bury Sarah. And then you remember the man first says to him, like, no, I, I give it to you. And then they kind of go back and forth and then the man just casually throws out a price. Well, this land, you know how much it's worth. So some suppose this might have been the beginning of ancient Near Eastern bargaining. I, however, am not too convinced of that. In the midst of an emergency with the angel of the Lord being in the middle of the air, I'm going to give Aruna the benefit of the doubt and say, I don't think he was doing some bargaining here. I think this was probably just his posture because he knew the seriousness of the event. I think part of what helps you knew, know that he knew this was serious is when he tells David at the end, may the Lord or may Yahweh your God accept you. Possible implication of that, if he doesn't accept you, it's not going to go well for you, perhaps, and it's not going to go well for the people because the plague will continue. 
And so Aruna or Rauna offered to the king whatever he needed, oxen for burnt sacrifice, threshing implements, yokes for oxen, but the king would not have it. He would not have it that way. In verse 24 we read, Then the king said to Arauna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord or Yahweh my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. You could say that David wanted to do this the right way. He didn't just want the land for free. He wanted to do it the right way. When you look in the First Chronicles account, First Chronicles 21-24, we're told that David told Arauna, I will not take what is yours from I will not take what is yours for the Lord. And I love what Gordon Ketty called attention to. Gordon Ketty called attention to the fact that even a conquered Jebusite had property rights. That's just a little bit of an aside that's worth noting. Um, in a day where some would be um, positing the notion that property rights shouldn't be as fixed as they ought to be. Nonetheless, David wanted to pay the price and he wanted to offer to Yahweh something that had indeed cost him something. And I do think that here we find a principle of worship that we are to observe. Namely, that worship involves sacrifice. Worship involves sacrifice. There was to be a cost for this worship. The offer that was to take place at this place was to be something that David said was to cost him something. The offer to take the land for free was there. It might have seemed appealing, right? People love getting things for free, right? You hear that kind of statement sometimes. People love getting things for free. And in our fallen frames, I do think that we do like to try to get away with giving God much less than what He deserves. You know it. In our fallen frames, that's so often how we are. It's so often what we do. Want a vivid example of that? That will stir you to not do that? Read Malachi 1. Right? In Malachi chapter 1, we see that the people were offering sacrifices that were not the best of the flock. They were the lame that they offered and so on. They basically were offering things that they don't want. They were offering God their leftovers. Right? And so often in our lives, you know, apply it to yourself where it's applicable, but you know we could be tempted to offer to God our leftovers. But what are we supposed to do? What's the principle that's set before us in the Scripture? What are we supposed to offer up to God? Not our leftovers, but our first fruits. That's being modeled for us in joining right here on this day, the first day of the week. Where are we? At the beginning of the day, where are we gathering? Here. It's a good reminder to us that we are to offer up to God the first fruits. This is the beginning of the week. Let's offer to Him our first fruits of the resources, of the increase that He gives us, that we are to offer up our first fruits. It's just a good principle of our time. It makes sense when you see the Lord Jesus in the mornings praying and spending time with His Father in prayer. It would make sense that we would start our day and offer up our prayers to the Lord, even as we see David do so often in the Psalter. Let's be on guard against the proclivity to offer up to God our leftovers. And grow in the grace of offering up to God our first fruits. One of the things I used to do, I've told you many times about my Roman Catholic background. And in Roman Catholicism, as many of you heard me say many times, right? There's not a a true representation of the gospel. Salvation in Roman Catholicism is a presentation of, you know, being saved by the work of Christ plus observing the commandments plus um, baptism. That's how it's stated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. 
Um, when I look back, though, at my life as a very nominal Catholic, I can see some funny things that are nonetheless yet instructive. And I remember when Lent would come around that, you know, I'd you sacrifice something. And I'd usually sacrifice something that I didn't really like. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't really want to give up potato chips. I like potato chips. I'm going to give up cheese doodles for Lent. I don't really, I don't, you, cause, and even there in the fallen frame, I'm going to I'm going to give up something that I don't really like anyway. Now, we would not be so crass as to do something like that. But to use language from Matthew Henry, we can be tempted to be so cheap. Um, Matthew Henry, uh, he wrote the following. He said, those know not what religion is who chiefly care to make it cheap and easy for themselves and who are best pleased with that which costs them least pains or money. For what have we our substance but to honor God with it, and how can it be better bestowed? So here is just a quick reminder in light of watching David, hearing David say, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Just please be reminded that worship will cost you. Not just monetarily, but if we are thinking rightly, will want to offer to God not that which is cheapest, but that which is best. The best of ourselves. Offering up our bodies as living sacrifices. And having a first fruits mentality. Now before the climactic conclusion, one quick textual note. You'll note here that David bought, end of verse 24, the threshing floor and the oxen, likely the instruments as well, uh, for 50 shekels of silver. Now, when you read in the Chronicles account, you see that David purchased, or used for purchase, 600 shekels of gold by weight. And you say, well, how do you reconcile the difference between the 50 shekels of silver here and the 600 600 shekels of gold by weight in the Chronicles account? I think the answer is pretty simple. In 1 Chronicles 21, the amount was for the adjoining area, not just the threshing floor. Because as you are going to see, it would not be only the threshing floor that would be purchased. God had designs for this land. And oh, what a transition this is. And what a kind of lead-in to the book of 1 Kings that this is. There was an intention behind this place. There's a reason why the angel of Yahweh stops over this place. And Yahweh says to the angel, stop. Because God had designs and intentions for this place. We'll see that as we look at the last verse of 2 Samuel. And David built there an altar to the Lord, or Yahweh. And he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord, or Yahweh, heeded the prayers for the land. And the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So having purchased the land, David builds the altar. He offers burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, according to the commentator Benson, burnt offerings were, in effect, prayers to God that he would remove the plague, and peace offerings were acknowledgments of God's goodness who had already given David hopes of this mercy. Now, when you look in the Chronicles account, you see that God answered this by fire. In the 1 Chronicles account, 1 Chronicles 21, 26, God sent fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. And then we see, continuing in the Chronicles account, that Yahweh commanded the angel to put the sword back in his sheath. Picture that for a moment. 
That this angel has a sword drawn and then he puts it back in his sheath. I don't know where the sheath was exactly, but he puts it back in his sheath. How epic. And we're told that the plague was withdrawn from Israel. First, a little bit more context drawing from Chronicles. At that time, when you read in Chronicles, the tabernacle that Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at the high place in Gibeon. 1 Chronicles 21-29. But David couldn't go there, we're told, because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Why is that important? Because that would be where you would make these kind of offerings. You would go to the tabernacle to do this. But you're not doing it in this moment. He's doing it right there on the threshing floor of Arauna. David then concluded that there, on the threshing floor of Arauna, the place where the plague ended, that that's where the site of the house of Yahweh, the temple of God, would be and the altar of burnt offering in Israel. He saw it. He said, he put the pieces together. I can't go back there because I'm afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. I can't go back there, but this is it. This is where Yahweh wants the temple to be built. We're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, or Yahweh, at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. That's where this was. The place where Abraham offered up Isaac, and where the knife was stopped. It's the same place in which the sword of the angel of the Lord was stopped. Continuing reading from 2 Chronicles 3.1, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So notice this. Where did the plague end? At Aruna's threshing floor. How did the plague end? Through an altar and through sacrifices. Where was Arauna's threshing floor? First Chronicles tells us that it was on Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham offered Isaac. It would be on that hill that the temple would be built. And it wasn't far at all from where Jesus would be offered. I find it interesting that the book of 2 Samuel ends with the plague coming to an end. The book doesn't end with a judgment that is ongoing, but with a plague that is stopped. And whereas David had to look forward to the one who would come in whom all his salvation was bound, here we have a little reminder of how that salvation would be secured with an offering that wouldn't be too far away from Aruna's threshing floor. Think about this. To what does the plague point? The wrath of God against sin. To whom does the temple point? The Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom embodied, who embodied all that the temple would represent, the presence of God most ultimately among, among his people. To what does the altar and the sacrifice point? The altar points to the cross. The sacrifice, and namely the burnt offering, would point to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for our sins. The cross is where the plague of God's righteous wrath is satisfied. That's where the plague ends. 
For those who do not come to the living God through His Son, there is a judgment that ensues for all of eternity. There's only one place where the plague of God's righteous wrath can be stopped. And it was at an altar, you might say, upon a cross that wasn't far away from where the temple would be built. It was not far away from where David offered these offerings. It was on the cross on a hill called the skull, Golgotha, where the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. And on that place and that place alone can the wrath of God be stopped. Otherwise, it rages for all of eternity, righteously and justly. But on one place, in one place, by one offering, the Son of God absorbing in totality the wrath that we deserve the plague of God's righteous wrath is satisfied the sword is put back in the sheath and all who come to the Father through the Son are forgiven forever hallelujah thanks be to God the cross is the only place the only place where the righteous plague of God's holy wrath can be stopped I encourage you, if you have not, I plead with you, if you have not, come to that place, as it were. See the Son offered for your sins. See Him as the one in whom all your salvation is bound. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died and rose so that sinners like us might be forgiven, not by our works, but by grace through faith. Amazing. To conclude, I, I just asked this question. Some, some might ask it. How do you sum up uh, the amazing narrative that some of us have studied for, for years? Uh, going back to 1 Samuel and seeing David introduced kind of in the middle of the book and then going through 2 Samuel, how do you sum up the amazing life of this, of this one, David? You know, I would say this. I don't think you need to. Reason being, I think the inspired narrator of 2 Samuel did it just fine. Because if you look at the closing epilogue, 2 Samuel 21 through 24, I think he wrapped it up the way it was meant to be wrapped up. Not only does the book end with a plague satisfied that points to a hill called the skull, but right in the middle of what I've told you before, that Hebrew chiasm, which is there for emphasis, right in the middle is not only a looking back of David to how God had so faithfully rescued him time and time again, but right in the middle was a looking forward to the one in whom all of his salvation was bound. His Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. What a study. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for the offering of Your Son. We thank You for that place where the plague of Your righteous wrath is stopped for all who would believe on Him for the forgiveness of sins. Thank You, Father. Thank You for this text. Thank You for all the instruction therein. Thank You for Your living Word. Oh, Father, I pray that You might find us, Lord, walking with a greater measure of awareness of Your holiness. And at the same time, being reminded from David in the text and being reminded ultimately from You that Your mercies are great. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You that the wrath that we deserve fell upon Your Son. Jesus, thank You for laying down Your life for us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
And we know we cannot secure forgiveness on our own. But You did what we could not do. And You satisfied the wrath that we deserve. Hallelujah. Father, we pray that as we go forward from this book, that You would continue by Your grace to lead us and guide us in truth, renewing our hearts, refreshing us from the inside out, and conforming us further and further to the One that we love and the One who loved us and gave Himself for us, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.